working. We're going to start something together that is new. Uh, for the next two months, we're going to focus on what Jesus did on the cross. Now, back in September, when I was deciding what to preach about here, this is eight months ago now, I decided that friendship would be one of the subjects that I taught on, and I've just finished uh, two months on friendship, but all the way back then, I also decided that I wanted to teach about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. And for all these months, for eight months now, I've been studying that while also preparing and, and preaching on friendship, and I, I, I'm very excited to share what God has done in my heart with you in the hopes that the same would happen for you. Learning about the cross has been profoundly transformative for me again. And it's not the first time that I've thought about the cross. In fact, it was 22 years ago, this spring, I was in a theological seminar uh, at the school where I was studying. And I had, I had been in the, probably the worst time of my life that I'd ever been in. Uh, some of you have seasons behind you of life that are terribly miserable and awful. Do some of you have those things behind you? It might be that you're in a season like that now. I was in a season like that in 2000. And for one of my classes, I had to read a theological textbook that was written in the 50s. And the subject we were reading on was the atonement. And I went off by myself. I pulled myself together. I went off by myself and sat down in the courtyard uh, at Princeton University, right beside the chapel. Have some of you ever visited that place? It's a beautiful place. I was there by myself, and I opened up this book, and I started reading about the cross. I started to weep. There were people everywhere. It was a beautifully sunny day, and people thought I was out of my mind. But it was the word of the cross there that moved me to hope from a place of despair. So that was 22 years ago. And, and since then, as a pastor, my hope is that God would use me uh, to do for some others what happened for me back then. And that's what I've been working on in these last eight months, to focus with you for two months on what happened when Jesus was crucified. Here's my conviction. The more you understand what God did for you when Jesus died, the more you will love Jesus. The more you love Jesus, and that is my goal, that you would love Jesus more. The more you love Jesus, the more you understand God himself. We might think that the divinity is too high for us to understand. Not so. When you see what Jesus did for you on the cross, you actually understand the heart of God. When you understand God's heart, you actually understand yourself better than you could in any other way. And I know that you're a mystery to yourself sometimes, are you? But understanding God opens up your eyes to understand you, and then you, you will bear good fruit in the world. And that's what God made you for. The world needs you to be the bearer of good things. And the route to get there is actually focusing on what Jesus did when he died on the cross. What, we're, what we'll do each week, this is an introduction today, but each week, subsequent to today, all the way up to the end of June, we're going to look at the way the Bible describes what Jesus did when he died on the cross. We're going to go each week to a different passage of Scripture with the question, what did Jesus do? When I said it like that, did it sound familiar? What would Jesus do, some of you are thinking? Were any of you around in the 90s? Of course, most of us are. 
remember those decades? I guess we were then. There was a youth pastor in 1990 in Holland, Michigan. And what she wanted more than anything else was to help the students in her youth group think about each and every one of their steps that they would take in light of what Jesus would be like. And she wanted to do this because she believed that the more her students looked like Jesus in the world and lived like Jesus in the world, the better it would be for them. Now, she had read a book written by a man named Charles Shelton. It was written in 1896. The book was called In His Steps, and the subtitle was What Would Jesus Do? So, so what she did is she made bracelets for each kid in her youth group. You, you know those little woven bracelets? She made them with the letters WWJD, and then those kids wore those bracelets, and it turned out that it helped them an awful lot think about each and every one of their actions in light of what Jesus would do. And that, in turn, led them to live more like Jesus than they otherwise would. Their way of being in the world looked more Christ-like because of these embraces. What we want in Renaissance Church is to live like Jesus. But what we're going to do together is instead of trying to imagine what would Jesus do now, we're actually going to go look further back so that we can see what he did do then. Because, this is why, the more we understand what Jesus has already done in the past for each one of us, specifically what he did on the cross, the more we grasp that, the more our love for him will grow. And the more faithfully we can see what to do right now. Our mission as a church is to see people growing uh, to love and serve Jesus together. And we're going to do that by looking back at what Jesus did. And the reason we're going to always keep working at this as a church, as long as I'm a pastor here, we're going to keep working at this for one reason. It is that churches will always face the temptation to make secondary things primary. To treat things that are important but not ultimate, as if they're the ultimate things. And every time Christians do that, we get our priorities out of order and things go wrong. Have any of you ever seen this happen in a church? Yeah. In the early years after Christ's death, a church is formed all over the Mediterranean. One of those churches was, was a church in the city of Corinth. It's not too far from Athens. Has anyone here ever visited Corinth? No. I had the chance to go with some friends and my family a few years back. It was magnificent to stand in the street in the ancient city of Corinth with the hill in the background, in the very same place where the Apostle Paul brought the gospel to those people in the early years after Christ's death. It was magnificent to be there. The city is situated right on the sea, and because of that, in the first century, that was an impressive city. It was right on the trade routes. And, and because it was an impressive city, the citizens of Corinth, this is when the Bible was being written, what they wanted was an impressive preacher. Someone who the citizens of their own city would admire. A leader who equipped them for spectacular spiritual achievements. They wanted to, it to be obvious that they had it together. And this goal, in some measure, was okay, but it went wrong because they made this their main goal. And Paul wanted to correct them, the one who founded that church. He calls it out right at the start of the first letter he wrote to them. At the beginning of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, look at what he wrote. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The lofty words and mysterious wisdom were the hallmarks of a successful preacher. At least that's how it was in the time and place when this letter was written. Corinth, settled right there beside the sea, was one of the most important ancient harbors for trade. And that meant money and power were always there in that place. So the city became a destination for the most revered teachers and philosophers in the first century. Uh, you can find this in other ancient texts outside of the scriptures. Corinth was a place where you would go on the speaking circuit if you had a name for yourself. And so naturally, the citizens of Corinth wanted a preacher whose wisdom would be obvious, whose rhetoric and eloquence would set him apart so that anyone who heard his message and his manner would be captivated. But this thirst for outward success, in this verse, Paul saw something that was misguided and it was a mistake of making a secondary thing into a primary thing, spiritual power and wisdom and knowledge. Those are really good things for people in religious communities to care about. But when they come first and the priorities are wrong, there's something dangerous happening. And what Paul wanted them to understand right at the start is that for him, the main thing, more important than his skill, more important than their religious activities, the thing that was deeper down and it should be the singular focus of his pastoral work among them would be, look again, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. Okay, that's his way of saying what Jesus did on the cross is going to be my chief and singular focus among you as people I care about. Paul loved the people in Corinth. He wanted them to have a faith that was practical and real. As your pastor, I want you to come together here each week and learn and grow so that your faith becomes a not, not just a significant add-on to your life, but the ground that you walk on so that you shine with the love of God and Christ in the world around you. And Paul here is saying to them, if that's going to be the outcome, then the singular focus has to be this thing, Christ and Him crucified. Christ crucified. Now for us, that phrase, Christ crucified, that might be something that we've heard before in a church, and maybe it doesn't shock us or scandalize us, but it is hard to overestimate how odd those two words together would have been in the first century. Christ crucified. Here, this is a visual picture of what that would have conjured up in the mind of a person in the early centuries of the church. This is called the Alexamenos Graffiti. It's actually carved into the side of a wall in a building that was unearthed in Rome. And that right there was carved somewhere around the year 200. It, it might be hard to tell when you're looking at there, but if you look closely, there is a figure, arms outstretched, that is meant to be a depiction of a crucifixion. Can you tell something extraordinary about the head of that figure? Yeah, it's actually a donkey, which is worse than a horse. And off to the left of that figure, with one hand raised, is someone who's... Uh, been carved in there to look like a worshiper, raising his hand in veneration, and then scrawled uh, beneath it in, in the kind of style that a graffiti artist would use, because this was scratched in quickly. It says, Alexamenos, in Greek, Alexamenos worships his God. It's a way of making fun of Christians somewhere in the year 200. If you go to a museum, 
museum nowadays and you look at old artwork, you'll notice that in the early centuries, much of what was painted was a picture, pictures of the crucifixion, and they make it look like a beautiful and, and an honorable thing that people are there worshiping Jesus on the cross. But this is maybe the first one ever made, the first depiction of the crucifixion. And what it captures is the truth that early on, to people in the first century, a crucified Messiah looked about as dignified as a donkey nailed to a cross. And anyone who worshipped him would be as absurd as someone worshipping a dead animal. Messiah. Okay, Christ in Greek. Christos is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. That word means God's anointed deliverer. For generations, the Israelites, the people of God, had longed for and hoped that one day God would come in person and deliver them. Do you need deliverance? Do you need deliverance from anything? We all do. Are we aware of that? The hope of God's people for generations was one day Messiah will come. Messiah is God's anointed deliverer, and Messiah means powerful beyond comprehension, perfectly successful. Crucifixion is, in the first century, the most ignominious form of public, public execution available. Is an ignominious a great word? It means perfectly humiliating. So to say crucified, Messiah, is about as sensible as saying fried ice. It just doesn't make any sense. A crucified person is the most shameful failure imaginable, rejected by people and also cursed by God, a villain that no one would ever want to be associated with in any way. It's not the kind of thing that folks in Corinth naturally would want their church to focus on because it looks just that foolish. And yet, Paul tells them at the start of his letter that among you, the most important thing for me to focus on is the crucified Messiah. Why? Why would that be a singular centerpiece of Paul's teaching in the church? The answer here is critical for you to receive right now in order for everything that happens from today until the end of June to mean anything to you. Here's why what happened when Jesus was crucified matters more than anything else matters. You, you might have heard me say that the resurrection, you, you'll hear Christians say this, the resurrection, without the resurrection, what Christians have means nothing. That is true. Without the, the meaning of Jesus' death and what God actually did when Jesus died before he was raised, without that, the crucifixion is special, but it's not what it is. What matters for you personally, right now, more than anything else in the world, is what God did for you when Jesus died for you on the cross. Some of you, when you hear me say that, do you have a sense of joy mixed with grief for what Jesus did? Does that happen for some of you? For others, it might not. I'll tell you right now that I want to change that for you. In the months that are ahead, I want to change it for you so that for you, that Christ crucified is the most significant thing about your self-understanding. You know that lots of things matter. What Jesus taught matters. Do you know that? 
Yeah, otherwise I wouldn't spend so much time trying to unfold this teaching before you as I do. The last two months we talked about friendship. That wasn't just a series about some good ideas that I have about friendship. It was an attempt to unfold Jesus' teaching about love. I hope you remember this, that Jesus said the most important thing is love, and it is the love of laying down your life for your friends that matters most. I spent the time I did on that teaching because Jesus' teaching matters immensely. But listen now. That's not the most important thing about Jesus. His example also matters. Have you ever been moved in your heart by the example that Jesus said? I have. The way that he loved people is so moving. The example that he sets in crossing boundaries that other people respect. The way that he reaches out to outsiders. That example of his kindness and his mercy and his grace. The way that he's patient with the disciples when they're just too stupid to get it. That really moves me and gives me some encouragement. But that example of Jesus, while important, that's also not the most important thing. Uh, what we believe together as a church, that matters also. That's why the pastors, why I and all the other pastors of this church spend time trying to teach the truth. Because it's better for you and for me to believe the right things. And that's why we work at instruction that has substance and integrity. Because what we believe matters a lot, but that also is not the most important thing. How we behave, that also matters. I speak often about the importance of our belief expressing itself in our behaviors, and we've all known what it's like when someone says they believe this and they behave in a different way. We want to be people whose behaviors match what we believe because that matters immensely. But again, that is not the most important thing either. What we believe matters, how we behave matters, what Jesus teaches it matters, his example matters, but none of these things have their true value or meaning apart from what matters most, which is what Jesus did. That's why nearly 30% of the gospel, gospels, all four of them, focus on the events surrounding the crucifixion, and it's why Paul was determined to focus primarily on Christ crucified. Everything which Jesus taught and everything which Jesus did finds its meaning in the particularity of his death. Because what Jesus did when he died on the cross matters more than anything else. So what did he do when he died on the cross? My hope will be to unfold that clearly over the next two months. But for this morning, here's what I can say. In theological language, the question of what Jesus did on the cross is a question about the doctrine of the atonement. Some of you who love theology are so excited right now. You two or three, I'm on your side. When I went off to seminary, I thought words like atonement were the words that certain religious people used to show off or to make themselves feel superior to other religious communities that weren't as deep as they were because they used those words as, as frequently. But when I began to study and learn about the doctrine of atonement, God's light shone in the dark places in my heart where up until that point it was just shadows that were scary. But as light came in and liberated me. What Jesus did on the cross when he died, listen to this. His death changed your estrangement from God. When he died on the cross, he reestablishes the relationship between you and God that was fractured and could never be fixed by you. Jesus made everything that had gone wrong 
himself, offering them, reconciles us, you, me, to God. Removing the distance between us, abolishing the barrier that would otherwise have persisted, overcoming enmity with his grace so that you could be God's friend yet again. You don't often think like this, but the troubles that you face in life, the things that, that, that cause you to feel tired and hopeless, the things that are despair-inducing, all of them are removed when the distance between you and God is bridged. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took care of all of that distance. And knowing that and accepting that is what we're going to work on together today. And I wish that I could just show you one scripture up here that would say everything there is to say about what Jesus did on the cross. But it turns out that's not possible because there are just so many scriptures in the New Testament which say what Jesus did on the cross. And please get this. Get this, each one answers the question of what Jesus did in its own unique and indispensable way. To really grasp what Jesus did on the cross, we can't just say, here is the, the theory of atonement that says it all, and then rattle off one sentence. Instead, if we go to the Bible and take our time, we discover a range of images illuminating the various aspects of Jesus' death that, that's like a light refracting through the facets of the gem when you turn it in your hand. Can you picture that? On the cross, Jesus died to save us from our sins. Have you heard that before? It's true. It may be that that's mostly what we hear about when we hear about Jesus' death. It's not all that the New Testament talks about. Here, listen to this. On the cross, Jesus was doing battle with the forces of evil, and he won, even though it looked like he was defeated, and he shares that victory with us if we'll open our hands and receive what he gives. That's also in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament talks about the crucifixion like that a lot more than in other ways. Now, how about this? On the cross, Jesus was treated as a criminal so that you could be liberated and freed. Were some of you here on Good Friday when Pastor Vito preached? Yeah? That was a good sermon, wasn't it? I'm so good at this, I was going to take off this week. Is that Listen, on the cross, the legal record with its demands and all of your misdeeds that was taken away by Jesus and nailed to the cross. On the cross, Jesus was treated as guilty, even though he was innocent, so that you, the guilty, could be treated as innocent and be reckoned as the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus' blood was spilled so that your misdeeds and every stain and every sin could be washed away and you could be made altogether new. On the cross, Jesus was obedient, undoing the disobedience of Adam so that you and I could be liberated and righteous before God and walk with heads held high. On the cross, Jesus was tearing the veil that kept us away from God so that we could go into the presence of the divine without any hesitance and confidence and joy and find help in our time of need before the Almighty who welcomes us with open arms. On the cross, Jesus was killed so that we could live. Oh, I'm getting into it. Listen. If you are listening carefully to each one of those statements, you'll hear images that point us in different directions. In directions of, about guilt or impurity 
or imprisonment, or death in life, or estrangement, or disobedience. The richness of the message of the cross is such that it speaks to us in every one of those ways. It's easy to just skim over it and have just one idea. Jesus died to save you from my sins, which of course is true, but it doesn't do what dwelling on the message of the cross does. Listen now, which is to take a graduate student who's at the very end of his rope with absolutely no sense of hope whatsoever in life. That was me back in 2000. And it shines a bright light into his heart and it says something that only can be said through this scandal of a crucified Messiah. And it doesn't spill to me. And, and my life is in such a different place now, but when I dwell on the cross, and I'm going to dwell on it with you, so that it hopes that God does through that focus what only comes for people when Christ and Him crucified is central. It's going to take work together with our minds. I have been studying and working hard, and my promise to you is each time I'm here, it would be to carry forward the, the fruits of, of those labors so that God himself can do something for you. What might he do? Why spend two months on this particular subject? And two months is a long time to spend. About in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul actually says something about the subject of what Jesus did. That makes it plain why it's worth spending time on it. Here, look with me. This is in the first chapter, verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those people who look at it from a distance like that, guy who was making fun of Alex Savinos for worshiping a donkey. The message of the cross is absolutely foolish. And perishing here doesn't just mean after you die, you go one way rather than the other. No. Perishing here means to live each day away from God. We, we can live perishing today. And you may know this from your own experience. Sometimes you may feel like life is one long perishing. And to those folks who won't look at it with eyes that are open and hearts that are humble, the, the cross will look like foolishness. But to those who are being saved, and, and let me tell you that you right now are being saved. You are. You're here on a Sunday morning instead of anywhere else that you can be. And that means your heart is open to God. And that's all that it takes to be someone who is being saved. That's it. To have a heart that's open. To come and sit down and say, I'll pass the time here and see if God might say something to me. Paul would say to you, you are being saved. And to you, the message about the cross, that means just hearing someone talk about it, is, look at what he says, it is the power of God. That is a stunning thing to say. The man who wrote those words, first of all, in that letter, he believed that everything that exists exists because of the power of God. He believes that, that the whole universe had nothing. It was nothing, a void. And then by his word, God brought everything that existed into being, and it was the power of God that did that. 
There is nothing better or stronger or more powerful than that. And here, Paul says that the message about the cross, gathering together to learn about Christ crucified, is the power of God. And that means the message of the cross is stronger than anything. It is stronger than the power of failure in your life. Have you suffered because of your own failures? Under the weight of that power of your failure, the, the, the message of the cross is stronger than that. It's stronger than regrets. You've got some regrets. You look back and say, why did I waste those years? The power of the cross is stronger than that. It's, power than, it's stronger than the power of your habits. You've got them still, don't you? That you keep going back to? The, the power of the cross is stronger than those habits. It's stronger than the power of your enemies. It's stronger than the power of sin. It's stronger than the power of death and the law. It's stronger than the power of evil, which right now is ruining the world. It's power. It's stronger than the power of your shame. It's stronger than the power of your despair. Your all anything that you can imagine. None of it is as strong as the power of the cross. None of it is as strong as the power of what. Jesus did when he died on the cross. In the weeks ahead of us when we gather on Sundays here, my hope is simply that we would experience the power of God together as we learn about the crucifixion and what happened when Jesus died. What did Jesus do? If you open yourself to it, and I mean that, if you open yourself to it, you should expect to be renewed in your love for Jesus. That's what you should expect. When you look at what that Messiah did for you, you should expect that your heart will love him more. As you grow in the knowledge of God, you should also expect that you'll understand yourself more and more accurately because, this is the last thing I'll say this morning, because the most important thing about you personally is what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross. My prayer is that all of us would experience the power of God as we learn about this together. Would you pray with me now and ask, as I ask for God to do that for us, let's do that, let's turn our hearts into him. God, I thank you so much for every person who is in this room right now, for all those who are gathered with us online. You have brought us together for a reason. There is unique power in the message of the cross. We hear that so clearly from your Apostle Paul. We know it when our hearts are open to consider the depths to which you chose to sink in Christ to rescue and deliver us. God, in the weeks ahead, I pray that each time we gather, our minds and our hearts will be opened by your Spirit. I pray that as I prepare week after week, you would help me be faithful as your proclaimer. And I ask that the word of the cross would build us up as a church all together, and each and every one of us as individuals, so we would know you more and love you more and serve you.